when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will also say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, where when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow as Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Reading the Bible with a lens of love. This has been our goal over the last few months in our Sunday school class that we've affectionately titled, How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Bible? As we work through the pages of scripture, we're attempting to read its many diverse stories through the lens of love, using the life and teachings of Jesus as our interpretive key for those times when it's really difficult to make sense of what we're reading. Rarely do we come across actual words from Jesus interpreting another story in the Bible directly, but that is what we find here, as the Jesus of Luke 4 interprets the story of Naaman and Elisha from 2 Kings 5. So let's seize this opportunity to put ourselves there and hear the story as Jesus calls it to mind for his listeners and watch as the story does its work on them. There was a clamor and a jostling for the best seats as more worshipers than usual gathered in the synagogue in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath. They wanted to hear from this hometown boy with their own ears, wanted to see what it was he had been saying in other parts of the country that had garnered him so much admiration, that had inspired so many, frankly, unbelievable stories about him. 
A few older men offered a grunt of affirmation as Jesus was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and they watched him unroll it to the 61st chapter. They knew this one. They liked this one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he began, and they almost chanted it with him. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Their eyes were closed, their mouths moving silently as they encountered the familiar words. To let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A few mouths were still moving on to the next line about proclaiming the day of God's vengeance on their enemies when they heard Jesus abruptly begin to roll the scroll back up, claiming, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why would he stop short? One of them wondered. He left out the best part, thought another, and a third leaned over to his neighbor, whispering, What's he got against showing our enemies who's really in charge? A thousand years earlier, Israel was locked in a national conflict with Aram, or Syria, as we call it today, and it wasn't going well for Israel. Syria's armies had overpowered them. They raided their villages and dragged their terrified citizens away from their homes to serve as slaves in a foreign land. Israel faced disparaging defeat. Leading this great and terrible Syrian army was a man named Naaman. He was strong, victorious, wealthy, spending time in the company of only the most important people, even the king himself. Through and through, Naaman was a conqueror, a national hero. When Syrian children played, they fought each other for who got to be Naaman. But as it turns out, Leprosy has no respect for rank or age or wealth. It's like cancer, a disease with no regard for who we think should be immune. Even for this man who seemed to have every means of shielding himself from suffering, suffering had come all the same. Not such a bad thing the faithful in Jesus' own day might have thought, a general of our enemy's army, the man responsible for prying those sons and daughters of the people of Israel out of their mother's arms and into a life of captivity. Now he's suffering from a humiliating, life-threatening disease. Serves him right, they might have been tempted to say. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. While on one of their raids, the Syrians had stolen a little Israelite girl and put her to work in the service of Naaman's wife. It's this nameless little girl who changed everything. If only my lord Naaman were with the prophet who was in Samaria, she said one day to her mistress, he could cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman was desperate enough that he listened to the little foreign slave girl. And after mulling it over, after watching his leprosy spread, he heeded her advice. Naaman went straight to the king of Syria. He shared the little girl's account of the prophet healer in Israel and asked for leave to seek his healing. And thus began the grand and ridiculous exchange of the kings. 
it went something like this. The king of Syria wrote to the king of Israel saying, I am sending you Naaman, a general who is very important to me so that you can cure him of his leprosy. Obviously, you see men of great power and importance. They must go to other men of great power and importance to get anything done. In other words, they totally missed the point. The little girl would never have sent Naaman to a king. Because if she remembered the stories of Elijah and Elisha, she remembered that nine times out of ten, kings are useless. The whole book of Kings is story after story of kings trusting in their own power, falling into corruption or cluelessness, and winding up either insignificant or the story's villain. She would never have sent him to a king. So standing in a long line of inadequate kings, the king of Israel predictably panics. When Naaman shows up with a mountain of silver and gold and all sorts of gifts, the king only saw a provocation. He's asking me for what he knows I can't give him, he lamented. What am I, God, that give death and life? The king sends this man to me to cure him of his leprosy. And while this was happening, some distance away, the real prophet heard about the king's panic. He called his messengers to him, and shaking his head, he dictated his rebuke. Why are you so rattled, he said. Stop. Open your eyes and see what God is doing. Let this man come to me, and then he'll see that there is a prophet in Israel. So back in the city, Naaman repacked his silver and his gold and his gifts and his servants and set away from the circus of the royal palace. And as they went, something started to happen. The parade traveled out of the city with its multitude looking on in admiration and fear. And then down into the outlying urban areas where people stopped and gawked at his splendor. And then down into the rural areas where people looked at him in confusion. And finally out into the desert where no one cared to look at all. They traveled all the way down, down to Elijah's modest hovel, where truthfully, they looked ridiculous. Elijah had invited Naaman into a place where his accomplishments and his reputation counted for nothing. Naaman, the, the great Syrian general, had stepped out of his world of control. And arriving at the home of the prophet, he was not even granted the honor of a face-to-face -face conversation. Instead, Elisha sent out a servant who instructed Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored. You'll be clean. And with that, the servant just turned around and walked right back into the house. Naaman's jaw hung open, and his hands began to shake, and his teeth began to clench, and the words hissed out, he's not even going to look me in the face. Does he not know who I am? This is not how this is supposed to happen. He's supposed to come out here and stand before me and call on the name of his God and wave his hand over this rot and the power of his little God would come down and fix it. And the more he thought about it, the angrier he became. The Jordan? He remembered the muddy, sluggish little river they'd passed on the way in. Aren't the rivers of Damascus way better than anything in this backwater place? He traveled too far. 
He'd made himself too vulnerable. And now this so-called prophet had dared to insult him. The messenger might as well have said, go rub some mud on it, it'll be good as new. His servants made themselves scarce as Naaman was overcome with rage. Jesus could feel the tension rising in the room as he preached. Although the congregation had mostly nodded along politely as he expounded on the words of the prophet, he could tell his omission of Isaiah's thoughts on the vengeance of God had not gone unnoticed. And to be honest, that was the point. That was why he had chosen such a familiar passage to read. The only question now was whether they would understand what he had meant by it. As the people stood to gather up their belongings around the room, one would say to another, didn't he stop a little short? Yes, the other would say, I could have sworn there was a part about God's vengeance on our enemies. And after they filed past Jesus, shaking his hand with a, what a nice young man you've become, or clapping him on the shoulder with a good sermon, son, he noticed that they lingered just outside the door to discuss what was weighing on them. Was he sympathizing with Rome, or was he just too weak to say what needed to be said? The questions began to spread. What other explanation could there be for a good Jew to withhold from preaching on the vengeance of God against the enemies of Israel? Poor and oppressed? Yes, sir, right here, one began to say to another with hand raised. Is he going to tell me my God's not interested in setting right that wrong? The rule of Rome was an iron fist. Any Jew who didn't declare God's favor for Israel over all others was suspect, even one of their own sons. Their belief in God's ultimate vengeance on their enemies was how they got to sleep at night. Who was Jesus to challenge that? After greeting the last little old woman who had looked after him as a child, Jesus gathered his things and prepared for the confrontation he knew was coming with the sizable crowd just outside the door. He tried to place himself in their shoes. Remembering that he too had once believed the narrative that God would take vengeance on Israel's enemies, that God's love for Israel somehow meant the rest of the world, even their oppressors, were any less God's children. He took a deep breath and began. Friends, he said, many of you have known me since I was a child. Doubtless, you'll quote that old proverb to me, doctor, cure yourself. And you'll say, now why can't you do here in your hometown all the things we've heard about you doing everywhere else? He paused. But you know why. A prophet's words don't seem to mean as much in his hometown. A critique from within your own household stings, doesn't it? The questioning look on his listeners' faces had turned to something more severe. There were lepers in Israel, too, you know, when Elisha prophesied, he began, and he saw that it touched a nerve. Enough of their friends and relatives had been struck by the disease that few of them even kept their heads long enough to hear what came next. You think it mattered one bit to God that Naaman was a Syrian? I am a Syrian, Naaman thought to himself as he walked. I don't have to take this. He muttered under his breath, not from these people. 
He kicked up rocks as he walked along the dusty road, dragged his feet a little, and then he heard a voice. Sir? He whipped around and just found a couple of his attendants. What? Naaman said. Well, sir, it's, it's just that if the prophet had told you to do something um, complex, something hard, wouldn't you have done it? But all he said was, wash and be clean, and he trailed off, not wanting to step too far over the line. So the other one finished for him quietly. Shouldn't we at least try it, sir? And at this suggestion, rage began to creep back into Naaman's chest. But then something broke. For the first time, Naaman opened his eyes and looked at the men standing nervously before him. He looked down at his own decaying skin, and he knew that really it made no difference if he was covered in mud. Who was he trying to impress anymore? So he went down to the Jordan. Down he went, leaving behind his parade of riches, leaving behind the reputation and the glory. Down he went, stripping himself of his expensive clothes, stripping himself of his impressive armor, of his persona, of his nobility, of his pride. And naked in every way possible, he waded into the waters of the Jordan. And as he did, he was swept up in a story so much greater than himself. He took his place in the unfolding saga of the Israelites escaping bondage and searching for home across those waters, of Elijah taken up to glory on the river shore, of all those who would come after him to meet John the Baptist in the same waters, of you and of me, all of God's children who have had their moment in the Jordan and emerged a new creation. As Naaman rose from the water for the seventh time, his breath caught as he saw that his skin had become clean, like that of a child. He returned to Elijah's hovel, a new man, and found Elijah, this time standing outside, waiting to greet him. And the prophet of God welcomed Naaman, the Syrian, the enemy of God's people. He welcomed him home. That's enough, one man shouted, grabbing Jesus by the arm and tugging him into the mass of bodies that had crowded around. Other hands propelled him forward. Other voices shouted obscenities. Other egos gave in to their base instincts, prejudice, hatred, fear. Of course God cared that Naaman was a foreigner. The God of Israel had done him a favor. This boy needed to be taught a lesson. This was not how they had raised him to think. If Jesus was suggesting that the story of Naaman meant God was more interested in tearing down walls between people than protecting the sanctity of Israel's identity, what would that mean for their future? Deep down, they, they knew there was no real hope of escaping Rome's chokehold on them, but it certainly didn't stop them from dreaming. And now this so-called prophet was trying to insinuate that they were the problem? That their patriotism might be in conflict with God's purposes? The cacophony of rage grew louder and louder until it peaked as the crowd reached the edge of town, coming to the cliffside, adrenaline rushing as they prepared to do their worst. Until they noticed... <laughs> 
Jesus was not among them. In their frenzy to dispose of his ideas and his body along with them, they had somehow missed him entirely. Reading the scriptures with a lens of love calls us to examine the text, yes, but we can't stop there. We must also examine ourselves. What fear keeps us from opening up? What hidden hatred manifests as condescension and prejudice? What pride would keep us from going down and going down and going down into the waters, from stripping ourselves of all that distinguishes us from one another, from breaking down the walls between us? Let perfect love cast out all our fears, and may we find when it does that we are one. Amen.